Hello and welcome to The Seagull, the place to stay up to date on everything you need to know about the 102nd Intelligence Wing, right here from beautiful Otis Air National Guard Base, Massachusetts. I'm Tim Sandlin from the Public Affairs Office, and I'm joined by Airman First Class Francesca Scredulis. Together, we will get you up to speed. Our podcast channel for the past couple of years, as we've been figuring everything out, has become a bit sporadic and unreliable in terms of the type of content we provide. So we're going to try something new, and we are so excited. A lot of the content we had been putting out was content that got displaced when we stopped producing our magazine, The Seagull. So we thought, what better than to combine all of our short pieces that would have been in The Seagull magazine into one outstanding podcast every month. By doing so, we can sort of resurrect The Seagull magazine, give our content the attention it deserves, and provide you with an awesome podcast. Inside this episode, you will hear this month's command message. We'll have some info on what we've been up to here at the base, a clip of the latest episode of Chevron's, and a feature history piece about Major General Charles Sweeney that you won't want to miss, all in a convenient one-hour package. We will try to keep the content light and fresh and as well-timed and relevant as possible. So let's jump in to the command message with Colonel Stephen Dillon. Greetings, I'm Colonel Stephen Dillon, commander of the 253rd Cyberspace Engineering Installation, an organization consisting of the 253rd, 212th Engineering Installation Squadron, and the 202nd Weather Flight. Back in November, I spoke about the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General Charles Brown's white paper, Accelerate Change or Lose. For this month's topic, I'd like to talk about the compendium to Accelerate Change or Lose, General Brown's CSAF Action Orders. In the CSAF Action Orders, General Brown identifies four key categories, airmen, bureaucracy, competition, and design implementation. I'm going to highlight each action order briefly to give you a sense of what the chief is asking of our Air Force. I encourage you to read the full text online in order to capture the framework of his action orders. Action order A, airmen. Leaders owe airmen and their families the quality of service and quality of life where all can reach their full potential. Leaders have a responsibility to provide clear guidance so our airmen are able to make decisions at the lowest levels. This is critical so we can execute the mission even if the guidance is unclear or our ability to communicate is disrupted in a contested environment. Ultimately, airmen must be resilient and ready to operate and succeed in the future high-end fight. Action order B, bureaucracy. Bureaucracy exists in any large organization. It is a necessity to address complex Air Force-wide decisions but not a requirement for all of our decisions. General Brown believes our bureaucracy requires a tune-up to enable us to make decisions at the speed needed in the dynamic global environment. Action order C, competition. Accelerate change or lose, but lose to who? While the stakes are clear enough, we must fully understand our competitors. Our national defense strategy acknowledges an increasing complex global security environment characterized by overt challenges to the free and open international order and the reemergence of long-term strategic competition between nations. For example, China is remodernizing their military and Russia seeks to disrupt the North Atlantic Treaty Organization Alliance with emerging technology. Action Order D, Design Implementation. 
We must learn now to be able to be agile and adapt to the future. No matter what happens with the budget, it will require us to make tough choices. We need to begin by determining what we need in the future and then make decisions that support that vision. General Brown seeks to identify systems and programs that are outdated and or unaffordable to make way for capabilities that will make us competitive in the future high-end fight. In conclusion, it is evident we are now living in a consequential time to be in the Air Force as we have the, an opportunity to make decisions today to shape the Air Force we need in the future. Change is critical and speed is paramount. General Brown's strategic approach of accelerate change or lose explains the why. These action orders provide the what. It's the way we address these action orders that will provide the how. Thank you for watching and happy 4th of July as our nation celebrates its 245th birthday. Over June was our annual training week and many units conducted safety training and exercises which will help us prepare and respond in case of real world scenarios. Coming up next, you'll hear about a couple of exercises that took place at the 102nd. The mission support group participated in a field exercise called Iron Throne where they simulated setting up a base in a hostile territory and the 101st Intelligence Squadron participated in Patriot North where they worked with partners from around the United States to simulate a domestic operation where our airmen help recovery efforts in the event of a natural disaster. In this exercise, Operation Iron Throne was a deployment. Um, we went to our simulated base called King's Landing. It's a hostile nation that we were simulating. So Mission Support Group really had the bed down to get the base ready for an incoming mission of helicopters. So the mission support group has a big role in any kind of deployment package. Um, we have everything from civil engineers that build things and sustain things. We have for support. Um, it is truly the cradle to grave uh, program. Um, we do all of the in-processing of troops. We feed them. Um, and then we also unfortunately do any kind of search and extraction or processing of remains. And then we have support from the logistics squadron. Um, they are in charge of all of your equipment. Security forces also did an amazing job of securing perimeter for any enemies that were coming in or internal. It's important to do exercises like this so when you get called up to support a contingency, whether it's within the Commonwealth or anywhere in the world, that you have the knowledge, skills, and ability, and you've practiced what you're going to do in the field, and you can support the governor or the combatant commander as required. In order to do this successfully, I believe that you have to have good leadership buy-in, you have to have members who want to do this, um, and you have to have a good planning team. I think, hands down, we had all three, and that's what made Mission Support Group amazingly successful. Um, great planners, commander buy-in, and great attitude from the members who were in the field plane. So we are supporting Patriot North 21, um, which is an exercise uh, scenario based in Wisconsin where they have suffered a severe earthquake. 
What we are doing here is we're standing up our UPAD, which is an unclassified uh, processing and dissemination cell where we're collecting imagery from multiple assets and we're taking the images that are received and we're processing them um, for any kind of uh, request for information or essential elements of information that the community needs. And that can range from destruction from the earthquake to uh, lines of communication like bridges, roadways, um, or the area of focus here is hospitals. We have feeds coming in or footage or imagery sent to us from, say, Civil Air Patrol. We exploit that the same we would on the federal side. It's, here's, a, here's an image, exploit it, point out what it needs to point out, and pass that to whoever requested the image to start with. Very often it's hard for us to conceptualize um, our customers and what impact we have. But when there's a natural disaster locally, like a hurricane, a flood, a tornado, whether it be in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts or as seen in previous situations like Hurricane Harvey down in Houston, we can see in a tangible way our impact on the community. Um, and I think that's important for our airmen. Teamwork is huge in this. We could not um, function if we didn't have, one, a diverse team uh, going into this exercise, and two, all the different um, physical and you know cyberspace forms of communication that we need. So uh, it really takes everybody. It takes not just the Air National Guard, but the Army National Guard. It takes the um, uh, federal uh, folks that we have that are actually working in Wisconsin and everybody that you see in this room today to make any of this happen. Um, here it's good to have a good breakup of all the different AFSCs because everyone has something a little different to offer. So we have imagery analysts that can put, push out products no problem. A one in, one in all might not know how to do that but they can pull in research from different places or they might know a different place to get more current imagery or research tools of hey was that building destroyed before the hurricane got there. You know they could look that stuff up as close as we can see what's put right in front of us we might not have those tools. So to have that mix of AFSCs makes the, the products we push out that much more informative. It's exciting to get onto the floor and coming into Dom Ops, being able to bring my uh, experience through training uh, at tech school and create these reports um, effectively uh, for our customer out in Wisconsin. Um, it's been a lot of fun. It's pretty important, I mean, we obviously all put on this uniform to be a part of something bigger, so that just adds to it and just just builds the esprit de corps even more, I guess. I think this is something unique to the National Guard where we have citizen soldiers who are able to harness their civilian and military experience and they're ready and poised to support any kind of contingency, whether it be local, uh, state, or federally. Chief Master Sergeant Maurice Williams, Command Chief of the Air National Guard, visited the wing and shared his vision with airmen, visited several installations on base, and met with unit members to gain a better understanding of airmen's missions and needs. Uh, well, right now we have Command Chief Master Sergeant of the Air National Guard, Command Chief Maurice Williams. Uh, decided to come down to the 102nd and actually see what our airmen do because we have such a diverse group of airmen. Um, so he's here to address things like enlisted professional development, what the future looks like for the Guard. Uh, just, a, just a really good opportunity to interact with our Air National Guard senior enlisted leader.
that Minuteman that we use as a symbol within our organization. In that right hand, he has the muscle. In the left hand, he has the plow. That means he's dropping from his civilian side to go take up arms to support the state of the federal mission. Going out to provide that security for the state and nation. That is what it means to be that Minuteman. That's why America is very proud of in addition to Chief Williams' visit, he was our guest on our first episode of our other podcast, Chevrons. So just a little shameless plug here, our podcast Chevrons talks to enlisted airmen from Airman Basic all the way up to Chief on topics that matter to the enlisted, and topics ultimately that we hope will be a benefit to their professional development. Our episodes air on the first Friday of each month, and on our latest episode, Chief Master Sergeant Sean Sullivan and I talked with the Wing Command Chief at the 103rd Air Wing in Connecticut, Chief Master Sergeant James Treficante, and Airman Joseph Shavs of the 102nd Communications Flight about the subject of resilience. Here's a little taste of that episode. Uh, Chief, I want to start with you. Uh, what are your thoughts on on resilience, and what has it meant to you in your military career? And and you know any events where you know skills that you may have learned have have benefited you in overcoming something. Uh, resiliency is, uh, for obvious reasons, which we'll probably get into a little bit later in the next question. Super important to me. Um, basically, I, I look at things as hey. Life throws you curveballs on a regular basis. Uh, things just don't go your way all the time as much as you'd like them to go your way. Uh, you know, everybody wants that job they apply for. Everybody wants, you know, the best of this and the best of that. And then there's those outside factors, which you really have no control of whatsoever, um, that kind of throw your curveballs and, and, and kind of put a lot of stress on you uh, in life. Um, so resiliency, super important. Um, and obviously, it's the ability to recover uh, from, you know, adver adverse actions and, and just bad things happening to good people. Um, it, it happens no matter what, whether it's a car accident, um, you know, numerous things. You, you can have example after example, um, but it's your ability to overcome uh, and, and continue on and basically repair yourself and, and come back a, a bigger, better person. Um, that's what it's really part of. Uh, and it's, it's, as I, I tell my kids, uh, I said, adult life is really difficult. I said, I know you're, you're having, you know, your whole world is high school here and, and you think the world revolves around the 10th grade. I said, but it gets really difficult when you graduate and you go on and be a big adult person. Um, and, and that's when you're kind of on your own and you have to make your own decisions and so on and so forth. So you need to learn and be resilient and, and be able to adapt to these difficult things. Uh, and, and it's mentally and physically. Uh, I think physically kind of builds off your mental, uh, you, you know, the stronger you are physically. Um, and I'm not saying a big bodybuilder kind of thing, but just kind of eat right, <clears throat> exercise, you know, keep yourself in good shape, keep yourself healthy. It definitely improves on, uh, on your mental resiliency and your mental health as well. Um, so yes, and like I said, I'll follow on more in the next question, but super important. It's a must have. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Shavs here. Um, was resilience for you with your military career here? Oh boy, resilience. Uh, you know, just even getting to the point where I am 
being in the military in the Air National Guard, I needed a lot of resilience. So it's uh, it was a dream of mine to really be in the military. You know, initially thinking the Marines and the Navy, I got turned down right out of high school, and um, just kind of had to figure it out. I learned a lot of lessons. You know, I'm I'm 25 now, and just got into the Guard. I got to be sworn in on June 11, 2019. And here I am, and I'm just raring to go and really learn and grow in every way possible. And just being a member of the Guard, you really have to put your best foot forward anyways to really be here. So I'm, I'm pushing hard. And the thing about it, though, about resilience is it's not something that you really just have alone. If it wasn't for the wing and, you know, my commander and my chief and my NCOs just around me, they were pushing for me while I was even enlisting, while I was at basic and tech school, always there for me. They knew I wanted to be a part of the wing and because I, I was going to go active duty. The wing gave me the job I wanted. And just having that support system around me, you know, egging me on, it's this really nice just reciprocal system where we egg each other on, we push each other to, to greater heights. It's, uh, it's nice because as a flight, you know, we aim high and we, we set the standard. I really do believe that. And we push hard, you know, we fight hard, we play hard, and uh, it's like a big family. And that really, that really helps me just be who I am. And also we learn and grow together. We, we, all, we all learn, and, and I, I think that's at least where I'm at right now with resilience. That's why I love having this introspective of, of having, you know, people at both ends of their career talking about the same topic and seeing the same tools are being exercised and utilized on, you know, for, for both ends, how important this is across your military career and how you're always part of, uh, of a collective body that can help you along. So th- this, is, this is exciting to hear. In our final segment of this episode, let's listen to the story of a significant event that for all intents and purposes brought along the end of World War II. On June 9 of this year, retired Colonel Joe Sweeney, a former member of the 102nd Intelligence Wing, returned to speak to a group of airmen. Colonel Sweeney gave an account of his father, Major General Charles Sweeney, a past commander of the 102nd and former commander of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. As a major, General Sweeney piloted the aircraft boxcar over the city of Nagasaki, dropping the second A-bomb on August 9, 1945. It's good to see a lot of old faces and old friends. And uh, really, you guys were like my family uh, for a long time, long time. However, can you hear me now? Yes, okay, it's good. Okay. So um, I got here to talk about my dad. He, he was the wing commander, and he used to be the commander of the Mass Air Guard. But before that, um, he graduated from North Quincy High School in 1937. He was 18. He had never been in an aircraft. And seven years later, he commanded a nuclear mission that ended a world war. So how did he get there? Well, when he was graduated high school, uh, there used to be uh, an old naval air station down in uh, Quincy called Denison. And uh, that is now Marina Bay. Uh, you know, if anybody's been down there, it's, it's completely different now. But that was a naval air station at one time. 
And uh, so he went down to Denison, and there was a guy giving um, airplane rides around Boston Harbor for $2. So he and his buddy escaped together $2, and he jumped on the airplane, and they flew all around Boston Harbor and around Quincy. And he was 18 years old, and he landed, and he said, I know exactly what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to fly. Love it, love it, love it. So, of course, he couldn't afford, you know, private flight license. So he said, I'll join the military. So the Air Force didn't exist then, so it was the Army Air Corps. So he signed up to join the Army Air Corps. He took all the tests, uh, passed everything, uh, physicals, passed everything. But back in those days, you had to have your parents sign off to, to join the service. So being the one of five children, uh, it was right after the Depression, his father signed right away. He said, there's one less mouth to feed. And uh, his mother said, no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm not going to uh, sign these papers. My son's not going to you know, die in a plane. So uh, he begged and pleaded, begged and pleaded, and finally she signed. So he went off to flight school and, you know, basic training then flight school and loved it. He just loved flying every day. And you have to remember, this is like 1938. There wasn't a war. And he thought, okay, this is going to be cool because I'm going to get my own plane. I'm going to get a white scarf and a pair of sunglasses and a leather coat, and I'm going to meet girls. You know, I'm going to be, you know, a typical pilot, you know. So anyway, that's what he thought, you know. So he, he right at the end of flight training, uh, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, obviously uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed. So he graduated the next day and was commissioned a second lieutenant the next day. From there, he went to Jefferson Proving Ground in Indiana and became a test pilot. After uh, about six months there, they stationed him in Eglin Airfield. And he became the base operations officer. And uh, he just flew everything that they had in the inventory uh, as a test pilot. Uh, when asked, I said, Dad, how many aircraft did you fly? He said, well, I was qualified on 60 different aircraft. And I said, 60 different aircraft? And he said, well, that's all they have in their inventory. <laughs> so, you know, that's, he just flew everything they gave him. So uh, he became pretty well known as a, as a test pilot in Eglin. And then um, while he was there, there were three significant events that happened to his life, in his life. Uh, first, um, one day, the base operations officer called him up and he said, Chuck, you know, I want you to cordon off the uh, airfield. He said, there's a special plane coming in and, and uh, he says, I don't want anybody near it. So of course, that sparked his interest. He's like a special plane. So he cordoned off the airfield, put security out there, and he went up on the tower. And that's the first time he saw a B-29 actually fly into Eglant. And so of course, he just said, I had to get into that thing. So he. He jumped out of the tower into a jeep, and he went out, and off that plane came Colonel Paul Tibbetts. So he, he introduced himself. He said, sir, I'm at your disposal. Whatever you need, you know, I'll take care of. And, and um, he said, I'd love to get into this thing and fly someday. So Colonel Tibbetts said, I'm looking for young pilots, actually. He said, why don't we fly to Wichita tomorrow? So he got in the back seat of Wichita. And after about the third flight with Colonel Tibbetts, he said, why don't you take the wheel, Chuck? 
So he started flying the B-29. He just loved it. He said it was like the B, he said they call it the Cadillac of aircraft. You know, so he just loved it. So uh, he, um, Colonel Tibbetts said, well, look, it, I need pilots, so I'm going to have you join my unit. And he said, sir, he said, I have orders to India at the end of the uh, year. And he says, well, I'll cancel them. So he says, you can't cancel orders, you know, I'm going to India. And he said, no, no, he says, I'm going to cancel them. So he's thinking, this guy, is a, he's a full bird colonel, but, you know, it's the Army Air Corps, it's not the Air Force, and he's on the air side, but he said, I'll, I'll see what happens. Well, the next morning, he got orders, he was changed, and he was joining the 509th Composite Group, and he was thrilled. So I said there were three significant events. Um, so every day, they would, they, he would fly the B-29 to get to know it better and better. And, um, after about uh, a month or two, uh, my father's childhood uh, hero, Charles Lindbergh, showed up. And he said, I'd like to see the B-29 to Colonel Tibbetts. And he, Colonel Tibbetts said, let me give you one of my best pilots. So my father was thrilled. He was 23 years old, and here he is. He has Lucky Lindy and just the two of them in an aircraft, and they're flying you know, all around the eastern seaboard. So he was thrilled about that. And of course, the third uh, significant event that happened at Eggland, and it's probably the most important to me, was that's where he met my mother. Uh, <laughs> she, she was an Army Air Corps nurse stationed at Eggland. And uh, it was a typical you know, nurse pilot scenario during World War II. You know, they were at the officers' club. She was reaching for the salad. He stabbed her with the fork. <laughs> you, you, know, you know the routine. But, but in any event, uh, they get married a year later, and, and uh, I'm the ninth of ten children, so you know the rest of the story. <laughs> so in any event, uh, from, from England, they went to uh, uh, Grand Island, Nebraska. And it was sort of out in the middle of nowhere, and they were just training and training and training. And um, they didn't know why they were there, and they, the, the Colonel Tibbetts said, just, I want you to know the, ins the B-29 inside and out. So General LeMay, who I'm sure in your history studies has have learned about General Curtis LeMay, he was the top dog. He was a big, rough, tough guy. Didn't take any grief from anybody. Um, he showed up at, at Grand Island, Nebraska, and he said to uh, Colonel Tibbetts, he said, show me the B-29. So he says, well, let me give you one of my best pilots. So my father, unfortunately, he's, he says, uh, he picked my father, and um, he said, this is great. I'll just get the general up in an air, airplane, and I'll dazzle him with my brilliance. And, and he said, that, that's not what happened at all. He said, the first day... They just sat in the cockpit, and LeMay said, just tell me about this, tell me about this, tell me about this, tell me about, you know. And he said, my father said, luckily, I knew more about that aircraft than I thought I did, and I could answer every question. He said, the second day, we, we flew, and um, he said, everything was, you know, status quo, it was good. And he, uh, General LeMay said to uh, Colonel Tibbetts, he said, you got one heck of a pilot there. So it was sort of a feather in his cap. So now it's September of 44, and they get orders to go to uh, Wendover 
or as Bob Hope used to call it, leftover, because it was Utah, and it was in the salt flats, and there was nothing around for um, maybe, you know, there wasn't a city around, I think, for about 50 miles. So they're out in the middle of nowhere, and they have a makeshift base and runways, and they're just flying every day, and it's sort of getting bored. But one day, it was a Sunday morning, my father went to church, and he came out of church, and an intelligence officer pulled up in a Jeep, and he said, get in the Jeep. And he said, okay. And he, they drove about, he said, about 10 miles out in the middle of the desert. And he said, why, why are we here? And he said, well, he said, uh, have you ever heard of Einstein's theory of relativity? And my father said, I have. He said, ironically, I read it in the Saturday Evening Post. And he said, I don't remember what it was, but he goes, I remember it was like multiplying energy or combustion. He said, exactly. He said, well, that's why we're here. He said, we're going to, and, and he reached down and he picked up a, a handful of sand. He said, we're going to have one plane, one bomb, and he just threw the sand up in the air. And my father said, that, that's impossible. He said, we've been fire bombing Tokyo every night. You know, we've killed 500,000 people. Uh, the whole city is in ruins. And he said, how can you do that with one plane and one bomb? He said, well, that's why we're here. And he says, you know, that's what we're going to work on. And that's when they told him, this uh, officer told him about um, the Manhattan Project the development of the atomic bomb. And he said, don't ever use those words again. And he told him about Operation Silver Plate, which was the actual uh, code name for the 509th Composite Group. And he said, don't ever use those words again. And then he told him about Project Alberta, which was um, the actual scientists making the, the uh, bomb. And he said, don't ever use those words again. And he said, don't even call it a bomb. He said, my father said, well, why am I here? He said, well, you're going to train the pilots how to drop that bomb. And my father says, well, how, how much does the bomb weigh? And he said, you just screwed up. He said, I said, don't use the word bomb. He <laughs> said, so he said, right, what do I call it? He said, you can call it a gimmick. You can call it a gadget, call it a pumpkin. And that's what they started calling them, pumpkins. And he said, um, you're going to figure out how to train these pilots to drop this bomb. So, uh, as, as uh, Joe mentioned, I used to be an artillery officer in the Marine Corps, and it was easy for me because, you know, I'd be in wherever we were in the world. You know, if someone would need to fire power down range, I'd say, okay, hey, you, this is me, you know, the FO. I knew where he was. I knew where I was, and then he'd tell me where the target was. And what is the target? Is it troops in the open? Is it tanks? Whatever. And I had all the ballistic tables, you know, I knew the elevation, deflection, I knew the weather, I could all figure it out. And about 30 minutes later, I'm putting a round down range. 30 seconds later, I'm putting a round down range. So you have to figure, here's my father, he has no tables at all, you know, doesn't know really the capabilities of weight for the aircraft, it's the, the bombs were 10,000 pounds. He's got to figure out how to drop this thing from 30,000 feet. So in a short period of time. So what they did was, he said, just make 10,000 uh, pound pieces of concrete, which they did. They called them pumpkins. 
and every day they would just load them in the planes in the belly of the B-29, and they'd go out and figure out how to, how to drop them out of the aircraft and hit a target. And they did this for months and months, and they got better at it and better at it. Uh, finally, in uh, July 16th, 1945, um, the, uh, they, they, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, they dropped an atomic bomb uh, from, George, how you doing? I didn't see you. Uh, they uh, dropped a, uh, an atomic bomb from um, staging, and all the scientists were there, and, and, and the tests worked, and, and uh, the scientists were all over the board. They, they said, you know, some of them said, this thing will never work. Uh, other ones said, uh, it, it's going to work, but it will blow, blow the, anything in, in, in within an eight-mile radius out of the sky. And then other ones said, uh, it's going to blow up the whole world. It's just going to set up a chain reaction and blow up the whole world. So, um, you know, that being said, uh, President Truman got the results of the static test in New Mexico, and he said, let's go. We're going we're to use them, uh, uh, you know, for real. So by the, then they had moved to Tinian, and um, so Colonel Tibbetts called my father in, and he said, okay, Chuck, he goes, we're going to use three planes on each mission. Uh, he said, I'm going to carry the bomb in my plane called Enola Gay. He said, I want you to fly your plane with all the instruments, which back then they would uh, need instruments to drop out of the plane to get barometer readings and whatnot. And, um, and then uh, there was a third gentleman named uh, Fred Marquardt. Uh, he flew a plane called the Necessary Evil. And the Necessary Evil would have all the photographers and the scientists in that. So the three planes would take off. And um, on August 6, 1945, they did. Uh, they flew for about, they rendezvoused over Iwo Jima. Uh, in the Pacific. It was a clear day. Um, after four hours, they all met right over Iwo Jima. And uh, they went in on the strike mission. And uh, everything worked. Uh, you know, they, they, had a, they had this new maneuver to get out of the airspace uh, where they had a bank right after they dropped the bomb at a 155 degree angle to get eight miles away. So they weren't within the circumference of the scientists thought they were going to get blown up. So in any event, um, the bomb went off, it worked, and uh, they went back to Tinian. And, you know, happy days, you know. So um, they said, you know, the cost, they were in real constant communication with the White House. And, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, should we use the second one? Uh, the Japanese have to surrender by now. And so August 7th, the next day, Colonel Timbers called in my father and he said, Chuck, he said, if, uh, if the Japanese don't surrender or the next day or two, we're going to drop the second bomb and I want you to command the mission. He said, okay, sir. And he said, what are the tactics? He said, same tactics. And of course, my father's thinking, okay, three B-29s flying into a Japanese city. I think the Japanese might suspect something. And, uh, and Colonel Timmons said, same tactics. He said, aye, aye, sir, same tactics. So uh, the Japanese did not surrender. 
so August 9th, uh, 2.30 in the morning, the, uh, uh, you know, dad uh, went out to his plane, they loaded the bomb in it, and uh, oh, so that, on August 8th, um, the reason my father flew Bach's car was his plane, uh, the, the great artiste, had all the instruments and, uh, you know, uh, barometer readings and whatnot in his plane. And he said, rather than have the maintenance guys work through the night to put, take everything out of my plane and put it in Fred Bach's plane, I'll just put the bomb in Freddie's plane and I'll fly his plane and he can fly mine. So that's what they did. So the third plane uh, was a guy named Hopkins and um, he uh, wasn't paying attention at the, at the pre-brief. So I'll get that out in a minute. But anyway, so 2.30 in the morning, they get their Atinian, they put, load the bomb in my father's uh, boxcar and uh, the first problem happened. They had uh, a, a, a fuel pump that didn't work. It had 600 pounds of fuel. So Colonel Timmons was there. My father said, you know, he was a major at the time. He's like, what do you want me to do, boss? And he says, that's your call. You're the commander. And my father said, well, all right. Well, we came back from uh, Hiroshima, and there was plenty of fuel, so I'm going to go. He said, okay, it's your call. So they take off the three planes. They rendezvous. There was a, a typhoon coming in to uh, Iwo Jima. So they went to uh, an island called uh, Yokoshima, which is about 30 miles from uh, Iwo Jima. And they said, well, rendezvous there. So he says, four hours later, I pull up. Freddie Bach pulls up. And the third guy never showed up. So they circled for about 15 minutes, and, and there's radio silence. So they're talking, and, uh, and uh, they're looking at each other, you know, Fred Bach and my father, like, where is he, where is he? And, well, the guy didn't listen in the brief, and he went to 39,000 feet, so he's 9,000 feet above them. So here they are burning fuel, waiting for him. So after a half hour, my father just says to Bach, we're going. So they take off. Well. After 45 minutes, the other guy breaks radio silence and says, did Sweeney abort? And that gets gobbled in transmission as Sweeney aborted. So they said, all the high command said, okay, well, just pull the ERC and rescue in back in and because uh, these guys are you know, going to fly back to Tinian because he must have engine problems. So here, he, my father is with a nuclear bomb. No one knows where he is because the guy made a bad radio transmission. So in any event, they went to uh, the, the initial target was a target, a, a city called Kokora in Japan. That was the, the secondary target. So they start heading to Kokora. The night before, there was a city near Kokora called Yawada and 244 B-29s had bombed Yawada the night before. So um, all the uh, fire, it, it was a, there were Mitsubishi armament plants there, and they were all on fire, and all that smoke was blowing over Kokora. So the, the, the uh, orders were to drop visual. So they get over Kokora, the two planes, 
and they can't see anything because the whole city is covered in smoke. So they make one pass and they can't, can't see anything. So they, uh, my father issues the block, he goes, we're gonna go again. By now the Japanese Zeros are coming up to shoot and shooting at them. So the Japanese Zeros couldn't get to that elevation, but the, the bullets were getting close. So Block's following my father and they, so he went to, instead of 30, he went to 31,000. And um, the Zeros are still firing at them. They went over the city again and they couldn't see it. So my father says, you know what? I'm gonna make one more pass. And uh, you know, the, the Zeros are getting a little bit closer. So they went to 32,000 feet. And uh, when they got to 32,000 feet, they still couldn't see the target. So my father at that point said, we're going to Nagasaki. So there's a, there's a term in, uh, in Japan called Kokora luck. And you can see why, that's where that term comes from. So uh, in any event, they, uh, now you have to remember he has 600 pounds of fuel that he, he didn't access. He's already waited a half hour for the rendezvous point, and now he's making three passes over Kokora. So he has uh, enough fuel for one run over Nagasaki. And uh, so he, uh, his, his co-pilot, Don Alberry is uh, looking at all the instruments. They get over Nagasaki, and uh, the bombardier was a guy named uh, Kermit Bean, and who was very well experienced in, in uh, bombardiering in Europe. And so he had the sights, and my father said, we have enough for one pass, and he, right at the last minute, he said, I got it, and I got it, and I got it, and my father said, you own it. And they dropped the bomb, and they banked out of there. Now, after all that flying, and all the problems they had, he realizes they only have 300 uh, miles of fuel left, and the nearest base was Okinawa, which was 350 miles away. So it was an airfield called Yonton, if anybody's been to uh, Okinawa, now it's called Kadena. But, so they have to go for Yonton. So they're, uh, they're flying, and he did what was called step flying. It's sort of like when you're in a car and you, you uh, put it in neutral when you go down a hill, and that's what he did. He just sort of eased up on the engines and sort of glided as much as he could because he had an extra 50 miles he had to get to. And uh, they can see uh, the island of Okinawa on the way, and Freddie Bach stayed right with them the whole time. And they were both trying to, you know, radio to the, it was the 8th uh, Air Force uh, at the time, and he's, they're saying, mayday, 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 and they, they couldn't raise anybody on the radio. So my father said, just shoot every flare we have out the window. He said, it looked like the 4th of July. And all of a sudden, someone in the tower saw them and said, you know, who, who are those guys? And they finally picked him up. And uh, he just made the runway, and by the time he got to the end of the runway, three of the engines had, had given out. And, uh, and then Bach stayed with them. So he said as soon as they, they, they landed, he said, uh, they were like, who are you guys? Where are you from? What, where's your flight plan? And he said, never mind money, any of that. He said, I need a secure radio. So he got on a secure radio and he called back to Tinian and he, he said, mission accomplished. You know, details to follow. So at that point, um, General Doolittle was the uh, commander of the 8th Air Force 
and he said, tell Sweeney I want to see him. So um, they got people working on the plane and, you know, refueling and whatnot. And he went up to see General Doolittle. And he said he just stood there in front of him at his desk, you know, reporting. And um, he said he didn't say anything. It seemed like five minutes. And he said, um, he said, look, reflected back on life later. And he said, I wonder if he was thinking, you know, here's the, the guy who probably did the last bombing mission on Japan when I did the first. But in any event, uh, General Doolittle said, um, I just heard from Tinian and, and I'm, you know, he was in uh, contact with all the higher echelon and they said to say, good job. So uh, that was it. They flew back, you know, went back to Tinian and debriefed and, and that's the story of the, uh, of the plane that you're going to see, I guess, next week at Wright Pat. So um, at this time, anybody have any questions? I can answer. answer. Yeah. So you were talking about, like, it seemed like there was, uh, or at least in the second story, there was some, uh, like, resistance and defense at, you know, zeros and maybe anti-aircraft. Was it the same for the first flight? Was there little resistance? Or no. So, so the question was, on the, on, the, on the, there was resistance on the second flight with the zeros, but was there any on the first? And uh, no, they, they had... Uh, because the Japanese uh, were used to B-29s coming over because they had weather planes that would fly over all the major cities to do reports. And for some reason, that morning in Hiroshima, they just thought it was a weather plane. They couldn't figure out why there were three of them, but they, they didn't suspect anything. So there was no resistance uh, on that particular mission. So, yeah. Weren't those planes especially, like, those ones for the 509? They were kind of modified. They didn't have all the armament as well as like right. the B-29. Right. Yeah, so the, qu the question was about the B-29s. They were heavily modified, and that's why they were doing so much training in Grand Island, Nebraska, and in, uh, in Utah as well, because they kept... My father said every time he got in the B-29s, there was something different, and they had to get, get rid of a lot of the armament and the weight to get the bomb in there. So they really didn't have any uh, defensive... Uh, mechanisms in the plane because of the weight of the bomb. Yeah. Sir, how old were we when you first found out all the details of the, the classification of the mission when you were allowed to know what happened that you're sharing with us today? Like, I'm sure it was classified up to a certain point, but when, when were you allowed to, to get the details? Um, when was I allowed to find out about the mission? Um, I, I honestly don't remember. I was young, but I, I remember uh, because of that uh, part of history. My father used to uh, travel uh, and speak at a lot of uh, schools, and and uh, he was already uh, he's had a little bit of a celebrity uh, in the aviation field. So, I I mean I was born in '60, so it was 15 years later. So uh, I, I I mean from what I remember he was always talking about it. But um, I, I'm sure I, you'd have to ask my older brothers and sisters um, about that. But I, I know they couldn't talk about it. In, in fact, they had the uh, 50th reunion at the White House of the 509 Composite Group. And um, I said to my dad, how'd it go? And he said, it was funny. He goes, none of us mentioned the Manhattan Project. None of them still to this day mentioned Silver Plate. And none of us mentioned Problem Alberta. 
You just said, you just don't, you still don't talk about it, you know? So, yeah. The, uh, so the first target was Cora, you said, right? Kokora, yeah. What was the strategic significance of Nagasaki as the second target? I mean, so it seems like um, they had kind of a list, right? So what they did was um, they they would pick cities. Like, they didn't pick Tokyo because Tokyo had got beat up enough, but they, they never bombed, like, the emperor's house. They would never bomb anything historical, like churches. Uh, you know, the Japanese, one thing about Americans, we want to keep the culture of the country. And um, they re the reason the cities were picked that were picked was those were uh, where most of the armament plants were, where they were building all the aircraft, where they were building all their weapons, industrial sites. And that's why they chose those particular cities, because they wanted to send uh, the Japanese a message saying, hey, you, you can't, you can't uh, keep fighting us, you know, it's going to, you know, so, yeah. Where did your father go on to serve afterwards? Okay, so my, my, he asked where my dad went to serve afterwards. So uh, I'll tell you a quick funny story that um, he, right after the war, he went to um, Hollywood because there was a show called 12 O'Clock High and he got paid as a technical advisor. And um, so he was there, and um, he met Mickey Rooney. Uh, I know you, you folks, are, some of you people my age might remember, but anyway, he was a famous actor. And he said, why don't you come to my house for a party? So he did, and that's where my father, he introduced him to Jack Kennedy. And Jack Kennedy, you know, President Kennedy had, had been a, a World War II hero in, in the Pacific as well. So. They introduced them, and they went out to dinner that night. And uh, my father said, uh, Kennedy asked him, what are you going to do you know, now? And he said, I love flying. He said, I'm going to stick it out as long as I can and uh, you know, see where it takes me. He says, what about you? And he says, I don't know. He goes, my father wants me to get into politics, but I really don't want to. <laughs> so 15 years later, uh, right out here, <laughs> President Kennedy lands, and my father became the youngest general in, in uh, Air Force history. Um, so my father, he was the base commander, and he was out greeting, you know, the president coming in. So he's, he salutes him, and he says, uh, good afternoon, Mr. President. And Kennedy got the plan. He said, you finally made it, huh, kid? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so he, he, he had a big part in the... Uh, uh, in the Air National Guard starting. So he was a big part in, he, he testified in, uh, because of his celebrity, he went to Congress and he testified um, for a separate Air Force, um, which happened in 1947. And then from there he went on to testify all of Congress about we need an Air National Guard as well. You know, a supplement to the Air Force, just like the Army Reserves and whatnot. So uh, he was a big instrumental uh, in, in starting the Air Force and the Air Guard. And um, from then, he, uh, once he st they started the Air Guard, he got his uh, flying command. And they, he bounced back and forth between Massachusetts and the Pentagon. He also started a leather company in Boston, because he had to feed 10 kids. Um, so it was called Kelly and Sweeney Leather Company, where he would buy um, uh, all the skins from, like the the, the, the hides from the uh, 
know, cattle that was made, and then he would send the skins to be turned into leather in the factories, and he would sell the leather to shoes, to make shoes. So he had that business for about 40 years. He also started a bank. Uh, when he died, he was on the board of directors at U.S. Trust. Um, in 1970, he became the wing commander here of the 102nd Fire Wing for two years, and then he became the commander of the Mass Air Guard for four years, from 72 to 76. <laughs> so, yeah. I had a good history here? Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, I spent 10 years in the Marine Corps, and, uh, but then I joined, uh, there used to be a Marine Corps unit here called the 125, and uh, I joined that, and as I was humping my 25-mile humps around the impact area, I could see the F-15s coming and going, and I said, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> and so I asked my dad, and he said, I, it, took you, it took you 10 years, but I, I figured you'd finally see the light. <laughs> so anyway, I ended up joining the Air Guard, and uh, I, was, I was actually stationed in Worcester at first with Tim Sandlin. And I don't know if there was anybody else from Worcester. Oh, that's, yeah, you were there. What was that? It was the, uh, Tim, what was it? 101st Air Control Squadron. Yeah, 101st Air Control Squadron. I was there for a couple of years, and then I, uh, they disbanded that unit, and uh, they brought us down here. And then I got into aircraft maintenance with Colonel Fagano, was my right-hand man. Kept me out of trouble for many years. So, um, yeah, I, was, I retired in, geez, I think, 2012. But, but I went through uh, with, with uh, General Lefebvre and Flav and, um, and Ginger, uh, Colonel Doonan. I, I know she got married. I'm not sure what her married name is. But we all went to, uh, with Colonel Fagano, uh, to Goodfellow for Intel School. And, and um, Colonel Riley as well. We were all in Intel School together uh, down at Goodfellow. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well listen, I'm glad, it's so uh, great to be back here. And I think of all the uh, training we did in this hangar and how many formations we had here and change of command ceremonies. And, and my office used to be right there with that light on. No, the one next to it, the one next to it. And uh, it's a great, great, uh, great organization. And uh, I wish you all, uh, it's good to see some old friends and. And uh, you like family, and, and uh, I, I wish you all the best in your career. And you made a right, right move by joining this unit. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks. Good? Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, I got a couple things to add. Yeah. Thanks. Sit down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like we said, we're hoping that you will find this a valuable compilation of events going on in the 102nd and the National Guard. For more content and information, look on Otis Air National Guard's Facebook page or our Instagram at 102IW. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you right back here.